Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. Joining us today for episode six of Disaster Politics Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to focus on disaster relief funding. And instead of having two guests talking about sort of two different angles, we actually have one guest and we really get into the depths of a lot of different components of various aspects of disaster relief funding. Now, I should note before going into this episode that the interview you're about to hear was recorded before Hurricane Harvey made landfall. So I want to start out by saying that, of course, our thoughts and prayers go out to everybody affected by this storm, as well as those responding and putting their own lives and safety at risk to respond to this storm. And also, the topics that we talk about are going to be highly relevant in the weeks and months that come. We're going to talk about the Disaster Relief Fund. And to put that into context, as of the end of July, the Disaster Relief Fund had about $3.8 billion in it and is projected by the end of September to have only $1.5 billion in it. It's awaiting the annual increase provided by the normal uh, appropriations bill that is still waiting to pass through Congress. Now, this is all within the context now of Hurricane Harvey, which is estimated to have an economic impact upwards of numbers that I've seen as high as $160 billion. And of course, that's changing every day. There is also going to be a need for some sort of emergency supplemental funding that the Congress is going to have to address when they get back. And of course, in addition to this piece of it, we also talk about agricultural uh, relief funds and public health uh, emergency funding. All of these things are going to be in play. You're probably going to hear the most about the disaster relief fund in the context of Harvey and emergency supplemental, but all of these factors are at play. So I hope you find this informative and relevant to the work that's going on, and we'll see you on the other side. All right, joining the podcast now is Robert Bradley. He's a policy associate with the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense. Prior to that, he served with the United States Senate for more than six years as a legislative assistant and professional staff member for the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. Uh, And there he was responsible for policy portfolios pertaining to emerging threats, emergency management, and other science and technology issues. Rob, thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me, Jeff. So we're going to talk about disaster relief today, and I know you and I have had a lot of conversations kind of offline leading up to this about the big three, about the Stafford Act and about public health emergency response, and and you've educated me on a lot of the nooks and crannies of agricultural assistance and kind of opened my eyes to that. But before we get into those kind of big three areas, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, what's the big picture with disaster relief? If I if I want to send a thank you letter to somebody, is it is it Congress? Is it the the White House? Is it the agencies? What's what's the bigger picture and the bigger game of disaster relief look like? Ooh, uh, that is a big question. Um, I guess uh, I would be uh, doing uh, my friends over at FEMA a disservice if I didn't say that uh, that it begins and ends with the local and state responders and emergency management officials. Um, you know, obviously, when we think about disaster response, especially in the aftermath of catastrophic events like Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, and obviously more recently Superstorm Sandy, we think about you know federal officials coming into disaster areas saying, I'm the government and I'm here to help. Uh, but obviously, while funding is, is an important part of, uh, of disaster response, and a lot of it does come from the federal government, at the end of the day, you know, as FEMA likes to say, they're going in there to support um, the efforts being conducted by on-the-ground officials. Um, so, you know, as we talk about these different uh, federal, uh, you know, uh, programs that help bolster response um, across these different uh, areas, we really should be keeping in mind that it's really the state and local responders and the the officials that back them up from the policy and operational level um, that are the folks that are in the thick of it, you know, on minute one. Um, And they're the ones who have to handle it the first 72 hours until the federal, uh, federal support can come in. 
No, that's a, a really, really important point, and glad that you, uh, you know, always bring it back down to the local, right? Because that's where all, you know a lot of the work is going on. And so you mentioned, you know, the locals and the states responding to this, and then FEMA and the federal agencies kind of coming back in. Uh, with the the committee that you were on with the Senate, what's the role of of the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, and how does it sort of play in this space? So uh, as an authorizing committee um, for a number of federal agencies, but especially those that are in the Homeland Security sphere, uh, the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee is charged with oversight and appropriate legislative uh, response to, um, to, to you know, current events, to idea, uh, problems that we identify or that are pointed out to us by stakeholders or agencies. I say us like I'm still there. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's... it's it's uh, you know, my, my former boss uh, once said that as he was a former governor, he said he's a recovering governor. And <laughs> I, I think in, in turn, a recovering congressional staffer. Um, and I think all of us who serve on the Hill are. Uh, but uh, but, you know, it, it, it the, the committee is really focused on um, both be reacting to the events of the day and obviously the easy to 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 hit upon ideas like the aftermath of major disasters. Uh, but they're also, but we're they're also there to identify and be more proactive about problems that are beginning to to boil, um, and hopefully try to address those through legislation, hearings, letters, uh, meetings with agencies and stakeholders. A lot of what happens in committees, as you know, is is very much behind the scenes, and uh, we only really get the the glimpses into what these staffers and their and the senators and congressmen over on the other side of the hill are doing um, when we have the hearings and the markups and those press conferences. Uh, but from, from the perspective of, of my work there, when we talk about FEMA and we talk about disaster response, uh, basically any time a new rule, regulation, law, uh, any uh, even small-scale disaster occurs, we usually will, staffers will reach out, touch base with FEMA, get a feel for what might have happened that went right, when went, went wrong. Uh, I'm personally a big fan of after-actions uh, reports, even if it's not a real report, if it's just a briefing. Uh, and trying to figure out ways that we can improve upon uh, upon what's happened, while also acknowledging the successes of, of what's come uh, of of how far we've come since Katrina. You know, I, I want to tease out just a little bit more too. This is really interesting. So, sure. if I want more money for a program mm -hmm. that already exists, because you mentioned you're an, <laughs> you're an authorizing committee, when do I come yes. to you? When do I come to you for money, or do I come to you for money? So, uh, I. I'm going to be very careful here. Uh, so when it comes to, to authorizers, um, I, I do, stakeholders, I think, do have a vested interest in coming to authorization uh, committees because uh, at the end of the day, they're the ones who end up establishing the programs and at least in theory, setting a aspirational baseline margin for what it should be funded at. Um, oftentimes, not always. Uh, there's plenty of times where you'll see uh, programs in law that are set at such sums as necessary, um, which basically cedes all control to the appropriators. Uh, or you'll see um, circumstances in which uh, they won't say anything at all. And there's a number of reasons for that. It could very well be that there's some political sensitivity, concerns about requiring um, uh, financial offsets elsewhere in legislation. Um, but that is really a moment in which an authorizing committee can kind of make its mark and say, we think that this program should be funded at the level that we have authorized, whether it be 30 million, 40 million, 100 million. Uh, we think that this is what it needs. And believe it or not, the appropriators, while they're perceived as having, you know, the keys to the kingdom and, and not really um, paying attention to others, they are very thoughtful and and uh, do reach out to authorizing committees for their input and, and to, in fact, to clear things by them oftentimes before putting them into uh putting it into the annual appropriations bills because um, they do frequently want to make sure they're on the same page and acknowledge that we're you know, policy experts in the, in the field. I, I was actually referring to if I was asking for you personally for money, but this was good too. The, uh, uh, <laughs> if you're asking me personally for money, I can tell you uh, I got a five on me and that's about it. Uh, All <laughs> right. See Go see the appropriators down the road. No, I mean, if if, uh, if if I if they were asking for specific money for for them, um, I would say if it's a grant program, uh, you have to talk to the government agency. If it's wanting to start a brand new program that you think you'll be the primary beneficiary of, that an authorizing committee can establish the program, but at the end of the day, the appropriator would have to be the one to fund it.
And that's where we see sometimes there are discrepancies. You have maximum authorized levels, but the amount mm-hmm. that's actually appropriated uh, may be less, or at times people may say appropriate more, but if it exceeds the authorized amount, it has to go back, right, for reauthorization or to somehow get around that authorizing language. Yeah, I, although sometimes people choo- do choose to just ignore the authorizing language. Um, nothing I would certainly endorse, but uh, it is it, it, you do see those sorts of things. It's a, it's a crazy mixed up world out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but but still, I mean, those are sort of the general muscle movements. So so let's get into some of the programs now. And I know so, uh, we've talked a bit about this offline, but this is really where the rubber hits the road, uh, kind of post-disaster. Uh, so the Stafford Act is probably the one that people hear about the most. And even if people... Uh, who aren't in the emergency management community hear about it. it. It's when you hear this thing of a presidential declaration, right? It opens up access to the disaster relief fund covered under the Stafford Act. Can you talk a little bit about what the Stafford Act is, what it covers, what it doesn't cover, why these presidential de- declarations sort of trigger this, why this is so important? Uh, absolutely, and and I can agree that it's it's extremely important. Uh, you know, again, when we think about disaster response, what we're thinking of um, are oftentimes activities conducted under the Stafford Act, um, and it's it begins with, as you mentioned, a presidential disaster declaration. Um, there is firm criteria um, set forth by FEMA, although they don't normally share it with the outside, um, of what it what you know under what circumstances they would recommend that the president um, issue a federal disaster declaration. Now, the key part here is that it is on the president at the end of the day to make that determination. Uh, FEMA makes a recommendation, but it is the president who decides when federal support and money is needed to address a disaster um, that, in the opinion of our chief executive officer of the country, uh, is uh, is beyond the capability of of, uh, state and local officials to handle by themselves. Uh, So... There are a number of different metrics um, that FEMA does use. Obviously, one of them uh, is the per capita threshold, uh, or the per capita, um, yeah, per capita threshold, uh, that uh, you know kind of take, puts a monetary um, uh, kind of spin on on the circumstances under which they would recommend a declaration. Uh, it's obviously an easy thing to do to use a, a monetary threshold as a trigger versus you know, the impact that a disaster could have on a rural community versus an urban community uh, and some of the other circumstances and, and, and variables that FEMA also takes into consideration. Um, but the one that people talk about most frequently is that one. Uh, after a disaster declaration is issued, then the wheels really start turning and FEMA and other partner agencies get to work under what we know as the national response framework. Uh, something that is actually fairly recent recent in the history of disaster response, uh, one of many changes and updates that have been made since Hurricane Katrina and um, the post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act was passed uh, in the last decade. And under this framework, it basically calls upon FEMA to work with federal other federal agencies who have expertise in certain fields of disaster response, emergency communications, transportation, mass care, public health, and to essentially uh, work to mobilize the items, equipment, personnel, and facilities that each one can bring to, to bear. Uh, for instance, you know, just look at the Department of Defense, who fields a huge portion of resources that are fielded in the aftermath of a disaster, whether it be through vehicles like helicopters or just pallets of water and other supplies that they happen to have available. And then, and then it's all deployed through uh, FEMA's logistics supply chain to the front and uh, uh, to, to, the, to the area that really requires it. And then FEMA goes on the ground and basically acts in a supporting role to the states and locals. Um, and, and a good portion of the money that we, talk, that we hear talk about uh, you know, coming for disaster relief is actually uh, pretty far after the disaster has occurred. Um, a good portion of what's spent in the, those first few days are resources tapped by the federal agencies themselves that they're reimbursed for, uh, as well as uh, debris removal, which is oftentimes contracted um, by state by the state and local uh, governments uh, through um, private entities, um, and then also reimbursed. A large portion of the funding that you see coming from um, from the disaster relief fund, which is where a lot of the money for a Stafford Act declaration. Um, go, comes after the fact for the rebuilding of public um, infrastructure uh, and, and, and private nonprofits, as well as uh, direct assistance to uh, individuals uh, and hazard mitigation. 
So in talking about the Stafford Act and the, and the activation of the Stafford Act, um, it's also something that requires a, a governor's request, right? It has to sort of follow that federalist model where where states have to request Stafford Act assistance. Is that is that correct? That, that is absolutely correct. Uh, and that goes hand in hand with what I was talking about before with the, the federal government, especially FEMA, viewing itself in a supporting role to the state and local effort that uh, the as we learned from Hurricane Katrina, that the, that is on, incumbent upon the state government through its governor to formally request that uh, the president declare a disaster uh, for their state uh, or for specific counties within the states. Obviously, you, you'll find oftentimes the governors don't have too much of a problem asking for that sort of declaration and asking for federal assistance. Uh, the, the sheer number of federal disaster disaster declarations have gone up. Um, quite a bit uh, over the last couple decades. Uh, and it, it covers any number of categories. There's the major disaster ones that people think about the most, but there's also emergency declarations, um, which are separate from major disaster declarations and, and apply more to smaller scale events, um, such as Flint, Michigan. Um, there was actually an emergency declaration uh, issued for that. Up to $5 million can be used for those sorts of uh, events uh, or, uh, or for um, federal, uh, fire management services, um, uh, you know, the fire suppression activity assistance, essentially. Um, and a lot of the declarations have uh, increasingly been issued for, uh, for those, sorts of, um, uh, those sorts of activities, unfortunately, uh, as a result of uh, some of the drought conditions we've seen out west and the increasing number of uh, wildfires. Yeah, and, and the different levels of, act, of declaration opens up different amounts of money, but for the largest amount, the disaster declaration, it's a smaller set of circumstances, right? Because I recall Flint, Michigan could be uh, covered under an emergency declaration, but not under a full disaster declaration because of some of the, the definitions in the legislation. Yeah, to, to basically... Um... To keep it a short answer, it basically comes down to the violence involved in whatever the disaster or where the emergency is. Um, statute essentially gives um, the ability for the federal government to, uh, you know, in addition to some of the other uh, some of the other um, circumstances and, and kind of criteria that FEMA uses, um, limits major disaster declarations to those that are caused by um, violent natural events, uh, wind, water, fire. Uh, earthquake, those sorts of things. Um, that that's kind of you know those are the sorts of things that when people think of a major disaster, that's basically what's in the law. Uh, to put it short, to put it bluntly, yeah. um, and and so that's when the the you know the coffers, as it will, open up um, and allow for people to uh, to get reimbursed. And I should note here that when a disaster declaration is issued, um, FEMA uh, is required by law through the disaster relief fund to take on uh, no less than seventy five percent of the share of costs and expenses um, associated with uh, the disaster. Um, and in fact, it can go up much higher than that. Uh, in fact, during Katrina, I think it ended up being 100% of the costs um, for Louisiana. And, uh, and obviously states want to see those costs, uh, those cost shares increase <laughs> because it helps them. Uh, but but it's it's a it's really a huge deal when the, the federal government um, does issue a major disaster declaration. It's an acknowledgement that it is something that is severe and requires the assistance of the federal government and the money that the federal government can bring to bear, oftentimes in the billions. Yeah, and there's a, there's a really interesting debate, and I don't want to get too far off track, but I do want to just point out for the listeners, check out some of the writings that Craig Fugate, the former administrator of FEMA, has been doing since leaving FEMA and really looking at, uh, as you mentioned, Rob, the, uh, the increase in the number of declared disasters. And there's some debate going on on whether there are more disasters that are more expensive because we're increasingly going into vulnerable areas and with climate change. Uh, but there's also uh, a disincentive for states to invest their own money in mitigation, that, that the feds are essentially this giant insurance policy, and you declare more because you're able to recoup more costs by doing that. And so there's some interesting suggestions of creating a disaster deductible, where if you mm -hmm. invest in your state's mitigation, you can reduce that deductible. So I'd encourage folks to sort of check that out a bit more, and maybe we'll dedicate an episode uh, down the road on that, but some really sort of interesting stuff. Uh, and, and I would also mention um, on that point that uh, I think I was just reading recently that that the new FEMA administrator, Brock Long, it also has is very interested in um, the same ideas that that uh, former Minister Fugate had um, had professed, and is interested in moving more of the burden onto um, to state and locals, and and potentially even lessening the amount of uh, assistance for flood-prone areas. So, so with that, I mean, there there must be some pressure in terms of like like 
how do they get the account set up for the disaster relief fund? Uh, how is it? Is it an annual appropriations process? Is it just a kind of a blank check that that they then have to backfill with funding after the fact? How much money is in the disaster relief fund at any given time? How does that work? So, uh, so I mean, that's a fantastic question, and and I would say that before Hurricane Katrina, uh, that wasn't um, necessarily thought of as much. Um, but given the enormous scale of, of cost and expenditures um, and, and loss uh, that came out of Katrina, I think it caused everyone to take a step back and, and, and more fully look at um, at what uh, at all aspects of, of disaster relief, obviously, but also whether or not we were fu- whether we were funding and how ha- and how we were funding um, uh, disaster relief efforts. Um, I think as of last month, um, the uh, disaster relief fund actually had almost four billion dollars um, in it. I think out of a total of nine point seven billion that was appropriated um, uh, altogether for FY17, and that includes carryover as well as uh, the FY17 appropriation. And FEMA says that on average um, they spend about ten billion dollars a year. Um, or that the appropriation is about $10 billion a year uh, and has been both before and after, um, you know, some of the reforms that we've seen take place in terms of how it's funded. But what's really interesting here is the way that the fund is uh, currently appropriated. Back in 2011, uh, under the Budget Control Act, there was an idea that was um, incorporated into the uh, final piece of legislation that said that let's, let's stop trying to decide year to year how much money to put into this uh, into the disaster relief fund um, based on you know based on assumptions and guesses about what we're assuming will happen disaster wise in the next year let's say put together a formula that that calculates out based on historical events how much money is going to be needed uh, and then we'll we'll set that uh, as the as the budget formula moving forward so we don't have to negotiate every year how much money to put into the fund and at the time, it seemed uh, it's, it seemed like a fantastic idea because it provided consistency, understandable and uh, and you know kind of assumable numbers for uh, disaster relief and disaster response. Uh, and and barring major disasters like our Superstorm Sandy, FEMA wouldn't have to come back to Congress as frequently to ask for supplemental appropriations as it had done in the past for some of the larger disasters that were out there. And by and large, up to this point, it has actually worked out uh, fairly well. With the exception of Sandy, uh, FEMA has not had to request emergency funding for basic response activities, uh, you know, the debris removal, the, the, the reimbursement of agencies for supporting uh, state and local agencies on the ground. Uh, there obviously have been, um, a, there has been a desire to uh, pass supplemental appropriations for activities that go beyond the scope of what FEMA is allowed to do under Stafford. Uh, for instance, right now, the maximum amount uh, of money that FEMA can give to individuals under Stafford to help them repair uh, or in some cases replace their homes. Uh, is $33,000. Now, they can also reach out to the Small Business Administration to try to get a loan um, to help with uh, those sorts of things, especially if it means rebuilding a home. Uh, But at the end of the day, FEMA is only allowed to distribute a certain amount of money under Stafford. So Congress will, on occasion, decide to appropriate supplemental funds to cover uh, activities that are beyond the scope of Stafford. But besides that, uh, it's actually worked out pretty well, this budget formula. Uh, and up until now, FEMA hasn't had to um, ask Congress for additional funds the way that other programs have, for instance, the Veterans, uh, Veterans Affairs uh, Department uh, recently. Um, so the, the, the supplemental funds that we see for Katrina, for Sandy, we'll talk a little bit more about the public health ones in a little bit. Sure. But, so those are, but those are generally um, either because they're of a size and scope that is beyond the magnitude of what the Stafford Act can afford and or because maybe there are things in it that are beyond what the Stafford Act is authorized to do. Is that is that a fair summary? Yes, absolutely. I think it's it's a combination of the two. There's uh, times where Stafford Act activities uh, cannot um, cannot be fully performed with the funding that's in uh, in this account. 
uh, by itself. And then there are also times where there are activities that uh, the Congress and the public would like to see done that just don't fall under Stafford. And having said that, there are a lot of activities that do fall under Stafford that people uh, might not fully understand um, or appreciate. Uh, and I, in fact, I have a laundry list here with me, but I, I will not read it out for your, your listeners. Sure. Uh, but I would I would urge them to, if they decide to, to look up the Stafford Act and look into some of the training and uh, counseling uh, and some of the other kind of less known um, uh, programs and um, and mandates that are in there for how the federal government can assist uh, local communities. Yeah, that's that, that's great. And I would encourage folks too to also check out with FEMA. FEMA has a pretty good uh, fact sheet, uh, actually an exceptional fact sheet for a for a, a product of a government agency on the the Stafford Act and what it covers and the different types of assistance available. And and as you mentioned, uh, a number of different resources that sort of talk about what it covers and what it doesn't cover. Um, so, you know, I, I know when we first started talking, we were talking about uh, different kinds of emergency funds and things like that. And you really opened up my eyes to agricultural assistance. And I didn't realize at the time, I mean, I had known about some things about um, crop insurance and things like that, but that there's this whole field of programs through the U.S. Department of Agriculture to to help out agriculture. And a lot of these predate some of the programs that, that we're aware of now or have evolved over time and are really, really very sophisticated. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, too, about this agricultural assistance. And, and I guess first, uh, why wouldn't it be covered under the Stafford Act, but then also talk to us kind of the agricultural side sector and, and all the stuff that's kind of being done sometimes below the headlines. Sure. Um, and, I, and I think it, it, talking about how it differs from a Stafford Act activity, I think, is, is a good place to start, because when we talk about a, a federal disaster declaration, we are talking about a, a specific circumstance in which a governor has asked the president of the United States for assistance in responding to a, a large event um, that has occurred, oftentimes, most of the time, a naturally occurring uh, disaster. And there's the programs that come out of Stafford are specifically tailored to uh, to deal with uh, large scale uh, disaster response. Well, not all, only large scale, other types of disaster response as well. But but disaster response specifically in terms of saving lives, um, supporting people who have been um, uh, who have been dis -de dislocated basically from their communities um, and, and otherwise taking on uh, activities that um, they're experienced with when it comes to helping individuals ride out the after effects of an event. When it comes to the agricultural community, obviously your clientele is a little different. Instead of human beings, you're talking about chickens and cows and pigs and, <laughs> and sure. plants. Uh, and so the same officials and mechanisms that work for, um, that work for uh, a disaster response, a natural disaster response, aren't necessarily always best suited for the sorts of uh, crises that you would see in the agricultural sector. So there is an account within um, the Department of Agriculture called the Commodity Credit Corporation. It was actually established uh, in the aftermath of the Great Depression um, for, unrelated, for reasons unrelated to disaster response. It was created to help shore up agricultural producers and, and commodity prices. And uh, after existing for a while as, an outside, as, as a non-governmental entity, it actually became um, officially a federal entity in the 1950s and has been under the domain of the Department of Agriculture ever since. Now, in the last few decades, it's taken on this additional mission of, um, of supporting agricultural disaster response. Um, and the way that they do it is very interesting. The Department of Agriculture doesn't actually have yearly appropriations for most of their activities that one would consider to be disaster response. Uh, or, uh, or even in the case of the commodities, um, oftentimes uh, that money is not appropriated. What they do is they have a credit line to the Treasury Department, and it's actually 30, a $30 billion credit line. And uh, while there is a budget submitted every year that assumes and tries to, to guess how much is going to be spent under these mandatory programs, like the commodity loans and, uh, and, and, uh, um, and purchases that the government actually makes, uh, as well as the disaster account, at the end of the day, what's really happening is the, Depart the Secretary of Agriculture is requesting uh, a loan, basically, from the Treasury to help pay for these uh, the activities. And then that loan is appropriated, uh, is paid off through appropriations 
um, the following fiscal year. So it's it's uh, it's basically a spend as much as you need, and then uh, then Congress will pay off uh, the debt. And and granted, as I said, it's not you know it's not every single dollar that's spent out of this corporation that Congress ultimately ends up reimbursing them for. But this is a mechanism that has worked very well for USDA um, over the last few decades, both for, both for their bread and butter operations, uh, such as I said, you know, commodity loans and and uh, other forms of assistance to agricultural producers, uh, but also on those uh, occasions where a, in a in, there is an agricultural disease outbreak uh, or some other kind of crisis that requires the involvement of USDA uh, above and beyond what their normal operations are. So that that's just uh, fascinating that there's sort of this uh, this IOU system in place with a thirty billion dollar line of credit. And that, you know, basically, um, it, it's just uh, amazing to me that it's sort of existed this long. And, and it's probably because it's it's a fairly bipartisan program. And it, it, it um, I, I'm just trying to imagine if there were other programs that, that had the same sort of thing in place. And uh, and any, any thoughts as to, to why it's been able to persist like this with sort of a, a with so much trust required in an environment that's that's not always been known for high levels of trust? <laughs> well, I think part of it, uh, as you noted, came, comes down to the fact that when it comes to this issue area, it doesn't necessarily break down along party lines. It can oftentimes be um, uh, more geographically distributed. Um, and so you'll see a lot of bipartisan cooperation on the issue more than you'll see elsewhere. I also think that uh, the, the both the department as well as these topics, including disaster response, have a reliable ve- legislative vehicle um, that they can kind of hash out disagreements and details on every five, four to five years. And I'm speaking, of course, about the Farm Bill, um, the, most, the most recent of which uh, is currently being debated in Congress right now. Uh, you know, back in 2014, when the last Farm Bill passed, it followed a number of months of debate and uh, disagreement at times amongst um, members of Congress and their staff on how much to authorize uh, some of these mandatory programs. Um, you know, now, now, to be clear for the listeners, when we talk about mandatory spending, this is actually one of those cases where the appropriators don't aren't as involved as much. Um, when it comes to, to, the, to a vehicle like the Farm Bill, the levels that are being set in that bill is how much will be spent, and then the appropriators will reimburse, or in the case of, uh, of anything else beyond the, the Commodity Credit Corporation, will appropriate to those levels. Um, and so there's a lot of influence that's wielded by um, a committee that has this sort of vehicle, uh, especially one that is um, reauthorized with the frequency that the farm bill is. And I think because of that, they have this opportunity to to discuss and uh, and debate and, and yes, disagree on on those numbers and the priorities and importance of certain programs. Um, and you know they they look at uh, congressional budget office outlays uh, that are oftentimes guessing years in advance how much money is going to be spent under these programs. So while they might um, you know they might necessarily might not necessarily be, you know, agreeable to a certain amount being spent on disaster response in any given year. They do have the ability to kind of bring up any concerns that they may have when the next uh, farm bill reauthorization comes. Yeah, and and in addition to that, there's also I know um, a couple of other programs like crop insurance, and and there's different kinds for crop loss versus mm-hmm. lower than expected pricing and ways to hedge against that. I remember reading through that. Um, really seeing some very sophisticated formulas um, down to, um, well, it was very clear that it was in a way where it really wasn't in your interest to cash in on the insurance policy, uh, <laughs> that nobody was going to make money off of it, but it would soften the blow. It was basically a percentage of the loss that was above and beyond sort of the normal loss that you would experience of a crop or something like that. Um, yeah. And, and also interesting with this was that uh, with the exception of, I think, one uh, disaster loan program, none of them actually required a disaster declaration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious with your take on that. Is it because these agricultural disasters tend to be much slower moving? They don't tend to meet the definition of like a Stafford Act disaster or um, or it just is a different sort of school of thought in the way that it's done? Or, or why do you think that? Uh, well, I think I think, as you noted, that part of it is the frequency uh, or lack thereof. Uh, Part of the reason why, going back to Stafford for a second, the reason why you know the Stafford Act is 181 pages uh, is because we've had decades of um, of experience in terms of knowing 
and and um, seeing how uh, how to do disaster response right and how to do them wrong. You know, we've seen from plenty of after action reports and and White House reports and legislation that's been issued from Congress uh, what we've done and what we haven't done right. Um, and and I think that experience um, has developed into this uh, process that we see today with the Stafford Act de- declaration. When it comes to agricultural response, we do have not infrequent events and outbreaks that occur, uh, but oftentimes you know, it's not in a situation where the governor is going to call up the president and say, you know, we have uh, avian influenza in our state, um, please declare a federal disaster. Uh, although, having said that, in 2015, there are plenty of governors that were very much concerned when it gets to a cat- near catastrophic level. Sure. And so that's, I guess, that's the difference. You see, you see disasters being declared on the humans on the natural disaster side for for much smaller events. Um, even emergency declarations being issued for something like Flint, Michigan. When it comes to the agriculture side, the mechanisms are different, and I think you see. Uh, you just, it's it's more um, uh, it's more relationship amongst the producers themselves, mm-hmm. um, and the veterinarians and um, and the federal government in many cases. Obviously, the state government is an important partner, and they're they're absolutely involved. But it's it's not the federal government coming into a state, and uh, and bringing to bear all these resources um, the way that you see in a. Uh, in the aftermath of a natural disaster, you know, during tw- in 2015, during that high, uh, high pathogenic avian influenza outbreak, what you saw was deep coordination between federal and local officials and state officials. But but most but a lot of the action was happening in the hen houses. Uh, mm-hmm. You saw officials going out there and talking to farmers and uh, trying to ascertain you know, how many chickens there weren't sick at the time to figure out how to reimburse them through indemnity co- uh, for indemnity costs for any chickens that um, that were going to have to be depopulated. Um, and so and, and to be clear, depopulated is a very nice way of saying killing the chickens. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't I don't I don't want to be mean to the listeners, but that's uh, <laughs> it is it is a it, that is how we refer to it. Yeah. And so a lot of it is the, the kind of on the, on the ground relationships. And I think you're right that it's, it, it isn't it is certainly urgent. But it also it also isn't something that can be seen at all the time uh, when you're talking about a, a pathogen, and I think that that for that reason um, the the approach is different. There's coordination and there's visits and and in some cases quarantines of directly impacted areas. But sometimes uh, a certain element of it is waiting to see what happens next. You know, it's it's uh, interesting too if you think back to kind of the genesis of of these various programs and the Stafford Act being a very complex disaster affecting multiple parties um, and uh, multiple levels of government and things like that. And so in some ways you have a much more complicated audience and and constellation of players involved. So you have a a somewhat simpler uh, approach and, and guidelines, not to say that it's simple, but on the agricultural side, you have a more defined audience. You said it's the producers or the growers and this history of crop insurance and working with actuaries and an insurance process and essentially coming up with mechanisms to subsidize risk or to um, create risk pools and uh, and where the federal government can step in and create insurance programs where the private sector, where the free market uh, insurance, where, where there is no market incentive for creating uh, these extreme risk pools. And so it's just interesting to see what's sort of grown from those two very different uh, different kinds of of programs. Absolutely, especially when you look at it from the perspective that the producers, obviously, while concerned about their livestock, are still viewing it as a commodity, uh, right. the same way they view um, wheat uh, and and other things that they grow. And so, again, the, for that reason, you see a lot of uh, much a much different response. And and that's why disaster response funding, uh, in my opinion, is kind of incorporated into this wider account that deals with commodity loss. Uh, and loans, because that is how uh, the Department of Agriculture views um, agricultural threats, uh, biological uh, threats um, to the to livestock and plants. It's viewed as a uh, as something that needs to be mitigated and addressed through this sort of fund that existed long before we thought to even address the issue. 
Yeah, and I, I found it really interesting too, just in terms of defining specifically like uh, trees, but they're trees for fruit, not for pulp. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up out in California, so to any friends I have listening out there, I do want to point out that uh, marijuana is not covered under the crop insurance. It's not federally recognized <laughs> as a commodity. That's only at the state level. So <laughs> yeah, I have no comments on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so all that aside, uh, but so we've talked about the Stafford Act. We've talked about agriculture. But one of the big things that I know you guys have been working on at the Blue Ribbon Study Panel, we've done a lot of writing on at Columbia University at the National Center for Disaster Preparedness, is this notion of a public health emergency fund, right? We've seen supplemental after supplemental, H5N1, H1N1, Ebola, Zika. And Zika, I think, really freaked a lot of people out because it took so long to get the supplemental. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was so much debate about it, and it wasn't even clear for a while if if it was even going to come through. So what's your read on that? What is it about a public health emergency that doesn't fit the mold of the programs that are already out there and have sort of kind of driven the need for this? Well, I think to to kind of touch on the same theme that we've been discussing for the other two accounts, um, it begins with what the trigger is. What and when? What is the circumstance under which one thinks that response funding is needed to supplement and elevate um, the actions of federal, state, and local officials? And with public health, it's a very tricky thing. You know, we we refer to this this account um, that's existed for since uh, the early 1980s, the Public Health Emergency um, Fund. As a uh, as a response fund, um, and I would say that it is a response fund, but it is also I would almost argue a short-term preparedness fund um, to uh, to to allow for surge capacity. Frankly, uh, before disaster strikes, um, going to going to the Zika um, example, uh, Zika was first identified as a potential issue um, in late 2015, early 2016. And yet, as you astutely pointed out, it took Congress until uh, the end of September of last year before finally coming to an agreement on long-term funding. And that was only after the president had to redirect over $500 million from other accounts, including Ebola, those that were uh, supposed to be for Ebola. So you bring up an important point that that there is this public health emergency fund that's been authorized that was created, mm-hmm. uh, I think, in the 80s, uh, but never really funded, right? I think currently it has about $50,000 in it and so and is triggered by the Secretary of Health and Human Services declaring an emergency. Is this the fund you're talking about? Yes, yes, that yeah. is the fund that I'm talking about. It's uh, I think it's actually thirty-seven thousand dollars at this point, but uh... oh, so, so <laughs> some someone bought a few boats or something uh, with could, it. <laughs> could be, uh, could be. But you are correct. It, it has not seen funding since 1993, and even when it did have funding before that, it was for very specific uh, crises. Um, I believe, in fact, the, the last most recent time it received funding was for HIV. Um, and, uh, and and so we've sat we have this account that's been sitting around for the better part of two decades without any funding in it, and I think part of that reason points goes to the to the question I, I you know, the question um, that I that I'm raising which is uh, what it, under what circumstances are you tapping this money, um, and uh, and I think that's the real issue you took you take a look at um, you know the situation with the disaster relief fund all those years of experience. And um, and knowing how uh, how the thing works and what activities it's going to fund, whereas uh, uh, with something like the public health emergency fund, uh, we don't have that sort of history. We don't have um, those circumstances or knowledge of what activities it'll go towards. We only have, frankly, the activities that uh, previous emergency supplementals um, have uh, have been funded by. Yeah, and those have. Um... Uh, kind of these supplementals tend to have a lot of other things sort of baked into it, right? I know the H5N1, I think it was the H5N1 supplemental had some strategic investments in the U.S. vaccine uh, manufacturing infrastructure to sort of get out of the, the egg base that's, you know, uh, half a century old into new, faster, and more efficient cell-based and things like that. Um, and so supplementals, you know, obviously have their place, but uh, but then they also tend to have a lot of these other things layered onto it that... Uh, don't necessarily belong in a Stafford Act style emergency fund, right? But should um, but should be sort of deliberated separately. But at the same time, in the absence of an emergency fund, to your point, we saw all this funding being pulled from existing programs, from preparedness programs, from other life-saving programs, uh, because of this uncertainty. So is part of this too 
the the difficulty in sort of identifying it because really in all of these with the exception of h1n1 um the, these weren't directly affecting the united states or were uh at the time that the alarms were starting to be raised i know we eventually saw some cases and things like that mm-hmm. um th- is that the main reason the stafford act is less effective or does it not cover infectious disease or is it's just not built for this yeah, I, I would argue that Stafford certainly has its place um, should the unthinkable happen and we see uh, a catastrophic outbreak of you know tens or hundreds of millions of cases um, worldwide uh, and, and and you know millions here that you know that would be a circumstance under which uh, obviously you would summon um, the Stafford Act because at that point you are talking about moving people and um, and attempting to clamp down on a catastrophic situation. Um, something akin to the Spanish flu outbreak of the early 1900s, um, which we're reaching the centennial for, um, would, would certainly qualify. But when you're talking about preparing, trying to get the country ready for a imminent biological threat, it's a lot more nuanced than the circumstances under which the president can truly issue a disaster declaration. Uh, you know, a disaster declaration is issued either immediately after or shortly before uh an event strikes and it is easy to see what the impact is mm-hmm. uh, that is not always the case when it comes to these sorts of things frankly with zika uh it could be years before we fully understand the impact of the cases that we have had in this country uh and it's difficult to determine you know the response to that sort of thing um in those in those circumstances it's part of the reason why there was a delay i believe uh, because uh, trying to understand the, the potential impact that a, uh, that a uh, biological threat uh, can have um, is, is kind of outside the, the cookie-cutter norm of what we normally think of when we think of a disaster response. Uh, and, and that's why when I say, you know, you know a, a short-term prepare, uh, prevent preparedness um, effort, um, that's what I mean. I, I, it's, it's something that we can do to take steps to be ready for an event um, uh, that we know is, is potentially coming, uh, but we don't know when it might, uh, we don't know where, and, um, and, and we don't know the extent to which it might happen. Um, there's a lot more uncertainty and unknowns, frankly, uh, when it comes to public health threats like Zika and Ebola, um, both because we're constantly learning about the virus, uh, even viruses that we thought we already knew a lot about, but also because it's unclear uh, how well you know our current pre- preparedness structure uh, will hold up against these sorts of things, and I think we should be proud of the fact that that uh, in the case of Ebola, we only had you know we had very few cases actually end end up entering the country, and they were uh, only I believe two or three that that um, were contracted within the United States. Uh, and I think it speaks volumes about our preparedness, um, our, our public health preparedness. But obviously, more can always be done. And, and when you're talking about making sure that we're ready against this potential threat, this surge capacity, um, we need a, a, a different system than the one that's afforded under the Stafford Act and the, 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 the kind of careful rules that have been put into place for natural disasters. And also the stakeholders in the public health infrastructure you mentioned in the healthcare infrastructure mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is really just a, a, a um, I don't want to say a different group of stakeholders, but uh, well, no, I'll say it, a different group of stakeholders <laughs> where, where, you know, FEMA is optimized around first responders and emergency mm-hmm. management and these infrastructure issues, USDA around the agricultural producers, things like that. And it's really public health around our, you know, healthcare and state and local health uh, infrastructure. Now, what I'm hearing, and I'm curious uh, if you're hearing the same thing or others, is, is three, to oversimplify it, three proposed models for this. One would be uh, just simply a transfer authority, and I think this is what the White House has proposed, so that in the event of an emergency, you can just pull money from other programs to be able to put it in there and just increasing the flexibility of that. Uh, the second is to create, uh, excuse me, to fund this public health emergency fund that already exists. Mm-hmm. So to actually put money in the account, maybe tweak it a little bit around the edges, but but essentially to use this vehicle that's already in place and give it a funding regimen to bring it up to uh, a more useful 
state of existence and, and their debates on is it 300 million at one end, is it 5 billion at the other? And then the third is to create an entirely new structure that, that takes into account the multi-agency nature, whether it exists at HHS or in the National Security Council or the Office of the Vice President, but essentially to work with a blank slate and create something totally new. Are those, is that what you're hearing as well too, or do you have any, any thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, I think you're right that those are kind of the three main ideas that are um, uh, being deliberated. And of course, you know, there's the fourth uh, option, which is unknown, uh, (laughs) something that could pop up potentially down the road. Uh, But I mean, I think there is some uncertainty about how uh, people want to proceed. I mean, legislation obviously um, has popped up in Congress um, in the most, uh, most, most recent couple of years um, that would actually establish a, a separate fund um, a pot of money that CCC is the CDC could tap into mm-hmm. um, uh, for their needs because and, and this to diff- further differentiate um, uh, you know, Stafford from what we're talking about now FEMA is the lead entity when it comes to a Stafford Act response but when it comes to these sorts of public health threats that we discuss CDC uh, and and um, and ASPR are really the ones who end up taking the lead, um, and, and frankly, DHS, HHS in many cases ends up taking the lead um, when it comes to working with those stakeholders, with laboratories, with uh, state and health, uh, local health officials. Um, and so Congress obviously has introduced some legislation recognizing that fact. So you see that them, you know, you see some direction movement towards that direction. Um, the president's budget uh, requested um, that a fund exist and allow for. Uh, for transfer authority, as you noted. Um, and then there's still some individuals out there, um, uh, some members of Congress, who, uh, who think that, that the current fund should be funded. But I think the real question we need to ask ourselves is, what is, what is the end state we want to w- get to, and, and what's the first step to get to that point? And I think the end state is to get to a point where we do have um, a flexible account that can be used by, um, by the federal government to support uh, state and local entities, oftentimes through many of the programs that and grants that we already have, as, as CDC fully utilized um, as much as they could last year during the Zika outbreak, uh, the, the, the Zika threat. But how do we, you know, how do we get to that point? And and I think honestly, uh, you know, our we've got a few options. We can decide to just put money into the into the bucket that we already have, this public health emergency fund. Um, or we could we could you know and see what happens with that. Uh, we could give the transfer authority, see what happens with that. But I think honestly, we're going to need to do some some experimentation, uh, and we're going to have to do a lot more studying and understanding. Um, to go back to the Commodity Credit Corporation, that org- that account has seventy plus years of of data and history to draw upon uh, to make the decisions it makes about how much to pay farmers for indemnity. Um, and and for other commodities and loans, Stafford has several decades worth of experience to figure out what activities it'll engage in. I really do think that this question is going to continue to, to um, perplex people until we have the opportunity to experiment and figure out what uh, what the data is and what activities such an account really will uh, really will require. Um, and that hopefully will alleviate concerns and reluctance that we're currently seeing from. Um, from the decision makers to back one option or the other, uh, you take a look at the uh, you know the the concerns that are raised for each one of the options that you mentioned, and it, I think it really does point to a lack of data and and the unknown. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and so on the legislative calendar over the next few years, right, we have the current budget process, which has a lot of the, the I, I would call it the Zika carryover discussion on this public health emergency fund. I know um, at the time of this recording, the, the House uh, subcommittee that oversees the Health and Human Services budget has put in a transfer authority, but has signaled willingness to kind of negotiate on something more substantial. It's up to the House to kind of put the whole bill together now and the Senate to come up with their bill. So we could actually see something in the appropriations process um, in this cycle, assuming, you know, we don't shut down. <laughs> but the, the <laughs> Can't uh, rule it out. Can't rule it out. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. The um, uh, but then also coming up next year is the reauthorization of the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act, right? Yeah. Um, and so that could really be an opportunity that um, 
could significantly change the bioterrorism and biodefense and public health preparedness uh, infrastructure depending on what kinds of changes, because that's what's created a lot of the preparedness programs that we have in this space. And uh, through the last reauthorization, made a few changes and a few things to that, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and again, much like with uh, the farm bill, um, that that vehicle is a great opportunity to be having these sorts of debates um, and, and trying to come to consensus um, on what the best path forward is on this and many other issues. That's um, why I personally am in favor is of, of congressional reauthorizations as often as possible. Um, but uh, but I think that's a great opportunity to have this sort of discussion. And I think part of that discussion is also going to have to be what the what the funding level is going to be. Um, you know, the people that are cons- those who are concerned about the transfer authority uh, are are concerned in part because obviously uh, the the you're talking about taking money away from other priorities. Uh, but there's also another element of is there going to be enough money there to fund immediate um, response effort and uh, response efforts until Congress can appropriate. And so we we need to talk about or we need to have a more of a conversation about what what the appropriate level of funding is needed because even for the accounts that currently exist uh, elsewhere, you know, in the case of the disaster relief fund, I was talking earlier about that formula and I said up until now it's worked. Well, uh, as it turns out, the formula uh, might not be working much longer, uh, and in fact, uh, within the next couple of years, might need to fix itself. So we have to be very careful when we're talking about um, setting up uh, this sort of thing, whether it be through uh, an appropriations uh, or uh, through the pandemic all hazard preparedness bill, um, about both the structure of it, the trigger for it, where the responsibility ultimately lies, um, and how much money should go into it. And I know earlier in the year with the Blue Ribbon Study Panel, uh, you guys held a a public meeting. You've held several public meetings, and I I had the the privilege of uh, uh, speaking at that along with many other uh, very great speakers. And I was really impressed with the level of debate on both sides of the aisle. Uh, There was uh, folks, uh, Republicans, Democrats, um, unannounced (laughs) affiliations, (laughs) but, but really talking about this in a very substantive way in terms of that desired end effect. And I think the panels really served as a as a great catalyst for having these discussions and having them in a very, very grown up way in a political climate that's anything but. Um, So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the work of the panel and um, kind of what you guys are up to now. Sure, sure. Happy to. Um, And and I'll start by saying that um, that Senator Joe Learman, one of the panel's co-chairs, um, is actually uh, also my former boss uh, from my previous life on the Hill. And (laughs) and. and I just I say that only to um, to to point to the fact that he has always uh, been one to try to talk to both sides of any given argument and issue, um, and try to uh, try to work across the aisle. And was very successful on the Hill when he did it. Um, and obviously, our panel uh, is is trying to do the same thing uh, when it comes to biodefense. Um, so uh, the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense, I it's it's a it's an amazing piece of uh, amazing effort that's been um, conducted by uh, the panel members, um, uh, as well as uh, the, our, our our two co-directors. Um, it's the first time that you're seeing one of the first times really where you're seeing a blue ribbon um, entity issue a report and then try to uh, actually see its its recommendations through to completion. Um, you know, we've seen Blue Ribbon entities come bef- come together before, issue a report, and then uh, then basically uh, submit the findings to Congress and, and other leaders, and, and then disband. And the fact that um, that we're trying to uh, follow this up, uh, I, I frankly, as someone who's who's uh, recently new to the panel, uh, find it to be very fascinating, and I think it's it's uh, it's a great thing. Um, but right now, uh, we're, we're working on a number of issues. Uh, we, we have uh, the original blueprint that the panel produced in late 2015, uh, and, and we continue to try to work with Congress uh, as well as uh, executive, the executive branch uh, and the White House to, to see some of these recommendations uh, to fruition. Um, we also um, are uh, soon going to be releasing on this uh, very timely topic of agro-defense We'll soon be releasing a report uh, on uh, agrodefense, specifically animal health, uh, and ways that the federal government can uh, further improve um, its ability to address um, those disasters 
uh, when they, you know, when, if the, should the unthinkable occur um, and try to shore up, uh, shore up those programs. Uh, we're, and, and, and lastly, we're working on a, um, a biodefense budgeting report because as, we were t- as we've talked about today, these efforts, all of which I would, I would call public health efforts, uh, you know, disaster response, uh, agricultural response, as well as and public health, they're all part of the same underlying, um, underlying effort and mission, uh, and that is protecting the country from biological threats. Uh, and yet they are located in different accounts, in different agencies, oftentimes with different leads. And uh, we don't do as good of a job as we should tallying and accounting for uh, for where those monies are, how they're being utilized, and where the gaps are. And so we are going to be uh, releasing uh, as well a, a general principles gui- document for um, for budget biodefense budgeting that we hope uh, will help uh, steer the conversation forward on how we can better unify that effort, especially after uh, the forthcoming national biodefense strategy is issued. Um, and you can find all of this on biodefensestudy.org. <laughs> Great. No, no. And thanks so much for sharing it. And, you know, we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation from, from FEMA to agriculture to public health, all on like sort of how the sausage gets made on the legislative side to the listeners out there. If you're still with us, you guys are hardcore. I mean, you should go buy yourself an ice cream after this. Uh, but, but Rob, thanks so much for talking through all of this and thanks for, um, uh, just for, for walking us through all the complexities of this, but it's so important and how all this is framed. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so thanks to Robert Bradley for lending his expertise and his time today to help talk us through some really complex issues and help breaking them down in a way to help us better understand them and understand what these programs are and and how they come to fruition and what the role is of the different groups involved with this. If you like what we're doing here, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get this podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can email us at disasterpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or keep the conversation going on Twitter. We're at disasterpolitic. In the meantime, thanks everyone for listening. Keep an eye on the legislative calendar, and we'll see you at the next one.